This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Um, I mentioned earlier this morning that there's a very close relationship between the idea of medical missionary work and uh, city evangelism. Uh, the medical missionary work, we're told, is the door through which the message will find its way to the cities. And um, uh, that relationship is, is, is quite, quite tight, actually. Okay? We read the, uh, the statement that said that you know, if we had done our medical mission work as we should have from the beginning, that means would have come in. And we would have had all the means to carry out all the evangelistic enterprises that we could manage or handle or something. I forget the exact wording. Um, to me, that's an important, that's, an important, that's a huge thought. Uh, because <clears throat> so often we, we find creative evangelistic methods that uh, are financially prohibitive. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, you know, if you can't actually pay for the thing to keep it going, you can't keep it going, you know? So we, we want to look at that somewhat and see how that, uh, how that played out in the past and some of the counsel as to how it might play out in the future, okay? Just uh, some quick summary type of statements. The city evangelism, how, how does it generate this, these funds? Okay, that one statement we read says that you know, we would, all this money would come in. Well, where does that come from? Well, Ellen White says it comes from those who are converted. Um, the, the reality is that in city evangelism especially, we are counseled... Uh, to, to learn the advantages that it offers, different aspects of city evangelistic work offer for reaching the upper classes especially. Sometimes this bothers people and they say, no, that seems kind of elitist, you know, to, you're only going to work for the rich folks, you know. Well, that's not exactly the way to view it, I don't think. The point is that the, the upper classes are those who have influence. And if you could walk into a room of a thousand people and talk to one person who knows and has influence over 500 of the rest, or you could talk to one person that has no influence whatsoever, who should you talk to? <laughs> you know? So uh, really, 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 you know, um, Think of influence. Think, I mean, influence is something, I, 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 th- I think of it as capital. It's like, it's like money. Influence is the currency with which we impact souls. How do you earn your money? Well, you usually have to work for it. How do you earn influence? You usually have to work for it. So what do you do? Generally, you sacrifice. Influence comes from putting the other guy first. Okay? Um, I'll, I'll, I just have to say that I was 
incredibly surprised with this. I am by nature a very cynical guy. Uh, maybe that's come out a time or two. <laughs> I try to keep it under control. But, uh, uh, or at least I turned it into a joke so it doesn't sound just plain obnoxious. But, um, I, I grew up right across the water from Seattle here. And, you know, the, the Northwest is a, is a very secular, self-sufficient, cynical, untrusting environment. At least that's what I remember it as. Um, and, and that's what I am. And, and so I was incredibly surprised a couple of years ago when we started up a health food store restaurant in, in Wichita, Kansas, a vegan restaurant in Wichita, Kansas. I mean, Wichita is like, you know, cow country, right? We started this vegan restaurant, and it was amazing. All of a sudden, these vegetarians and vegans started coming out of the woodwork. There are actually quite a few, even there in Wichita. It was pretty amazing. The, the good thing was that we had a, probably the best chef in Adventism, a fully trained French chef, trained in for three years in Martinique, and then two years apprenticeship under a guy by the name of Jean Montegard in France. Montegard is the only vegan chef to ever win the Cordon d'Or, which is the highest award in French cooking. So uh, Miguel Larcher, our chef, he, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> it's fun to watch him. Uh, really, the most fun thing was watching when something dreadful went wrong like 10 minutes before service. You know, when something burns up, what do we do in 10 minutes? And in 10 minutes, he'd have another dish ready. It was just astounding. Uh, that's when it was really fun to watch the guy. But anyhow, so we opened up this restaurant, and I learned a lot. I, I'm not a food guy. I, I eat food if it gets in front of me. And that's, you know, I mean, I try to be healthy, but I, I don't really spend that much time thinking about what I eat other than that. So, um, you know, there was a lot that I didn't know, a lot I had to learn, everything. Um, I ended up making smoothies because it's just almost virtually impossible to ruin them. <laughs> you just throw everything in a blender and beat the daylights out of it. It's, it's not that hard. <laughs> and so um, that, was, that, was my, uh, that was my station. Um, but that was pretty cool because I was right on the front lines and everybody that came in went right past me. And, and so uh, I got to meet and greet everyone basically and give away lots of little smoothie samples. Because uh, I'd, I'd constantly be making, you know, I mean, making an 18-ounce smoothie, so you make 21 ounces, and then you got, you know, six little samples to go away or something like that, you know. Um, and the thing that astounded me was how easy it was it was to win their their friendship and to gain influence with these people. All you had to do was be nice to them, give them a little extra, you know, would you like a smoothie sample? This is our best seller. It's the, uh, you know. Uh, Oh, I can't even remember the name of it now. Um, kale, pineapple, and uh, parsley. It's great. It really is. <laughs> it was our bestseller. Um, don't remember what we called it. But anyhow. Um, and and just, just being nice to people. And, and the thing that amazed me was watching how many of them reacted Actually, quite gratefully, and you get the—I I got end up with a distinct impression that there are a lot of people that go weeks at a time without anybody doing anything nice for them, you know. And it was—it was really quite amazing. And on the few occasions when there was something that I could, you know, really go above and beyond the call of duty and actually do something, and it's usually not that big of a thing, but people don't expect people in a restaurant to go very far out of their way. 
you know? And when we could, the people were so grateful. And, and it, it began to dawn on me that um, these people really valued our, our friendship and our, you know, we were an important part of their life just because we were nice to them. It's like really weird. Because you know, I'm, I'm just this cynical, independent kind of a guy. You know, the idea of walking into a health food store and asking somebody a health-related question because they're standing behind the counter with a little green shirt on, you know, I'd never do that in my life. You know, I'll, I'll look it up for myself on WebMD or something. You know, but, I, you know, but, but other people, you know, other people did. You know, and so, so um, I that kind of formalized the thought that I'd had before. But, but. Influence is your money when it comes to winning souls. Influence is, 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 is good as gold. And you get influence by self-sacrifice. Just go a little out of your way to help them. Just be nice. Smiling, you know? I mean, smiling doesn't seem like much of a self-sacrifice. But whatever it takes, just, just go a little out of your way and be nice to people. And so... So that's kind of a, a, a core concept that really comes out in a lot of what has, has happened. Well, let's see. Let's, um, let's go back, and I'm going to zip over to a different screen here for a minute. Um, I have a couple of things here that we're going to look at, but not too much. During the night of February 27, 1910, a representation was given me, of course this is Ellen White, in which the unworked cities were represented before me as a living reality. And I was plainly instructed that there should be a decided change from past methods of working. Wow, what does decided change mean? (laughs) Something quite a bit different, okay? So if you were the prophet and you had this vision or dream or whatever, February 27, 1910, we know exactly when it started, what would you do? Well, one of the things she did is she wrote this letter. And it's taken there from the Paulson Collection, but it was a letter addressed to conference presidents. But she didn't do that until September 16, the next fall. So it was like, you know, nine or eight months later before she got around to writing the letter. We don't know what else she may have done along the way, but one other thing was that about April of 1910, she went down to Loma Linda. And while she was there, she got John Burden, her most trusted individual, and uh, another guy by the name of Roderick Owen. R.S. Owen was the Bible teacher. She uh, specified, she said, we need the best Bible teacher in the denomination for this school. And they asked her, well, who's that? She said, get Brother Owen. So he was a guy that she respected too. So she gets these two guys together And she says, gentlemen, I have an assignment for you. I'm putting words in her mouth here, but this was the drift of it. God showed me we need a decided change in our methods of reaching the cities. And the answer is gospel, medical, missionary, company, evangelism. Now, I don't know that she actually had the word company in there, but she specifies company in in other aspects. And so I run them all together. I know she did say gospel, medical, missionary, evangelism. 
at a, at a later date. I don't know what she said precisely to these guys, but that was still the drift of this thing. Okay? She says, we have got to develop a form of evangelism that encompasses this medical missionary aspect. That's exactly what we need for cities. And so, gentlemen, I'm placing this on your shoulders. God will hold you accountable. Make sure it happens. Have a happy day. <laughs> it's like, wow. <laughs> so what do you do with that now, right? Okay. So all of a sudden, we've got John Burden and R.S. Owen and, uh, I don't know, maybe one or two others. Uh, maybe Abbott was there and Rubel might have been in on the deal. I'm not sure who, these, who all was. And you've got this little ad hoc committee who are now responsible for the development of gospel medical missionary company evangelism. But they all have full-time jobs. <laughs> so what do committees do? I love talking to people that are still relatively young. You have not yet been completely burned out on committees. <laughs> what does a committee do when it needs to get something done? They all roll up their sleeves and go to work, right? Exactly right. <laughs> committees never do anything. I hate committees. <laughs> They're one of the most necessary of evils and the most evils of necessities. But anyhow, <laughs> so committees never do anything. Committees always delegate. It's the only way to get anything done. So they looked around and they said, what are we going to do about this, guys? And this was the, the spring of 1910. Perfect timing. Because... Two years before, a relatively young individual had signed up for the two-year medical missionary course. And he's the guy that they settled on as the point man for gospel medical missionary company evangelism. You've probably never heard of him. There might be one or two of you, that's fine, but most Adventists will have never heard of him. His name was John H. N. Tyndall, J.H.N. Tyndall. Anybody recognize the name? All right. We've got a bunch of informed folks here. Good job for you. Um, thank you. May your tribe increase. Um, <laughs> and um, John Tyndall is a fascinating guy. Let's, this is going to be a little wacky, I know, but... Um, I don't know if you can read that. There's no way I can really pop that up on the screen for you too well. Um, my apologies, but I'll just, I'm just going to read this to you. John Tyndall was raised a Methodist, but that all fell apart when his little brother Willie died. No matter how hard the adults in his life tried to explain, nothing they said about Willie made any sense. They said he was in heaven, but John had watched them put him in the ground. They said he could see what John was doing, but John had last seen him lying cold and lifeless with his eyes closed. Perplexed enough with all this, the arrival of an old-fashioned hellfire and brimstone preacher undid all the Christian belief anyone had managed to get into John Tyndall's mind and heart. Later exposure to skeptical sentiments and the claim that religion had produced most of the world's war and oppression, which is an unfortunately easy uh, position to support, uh, led Tyndall to adopt a militant evolutionistic existentialist atheism. 
He had found his mission in life. It was to break the shackles of God from the minds and the hands of mankind. So um, this is John Tyndall. I'm going to summarize a little bit here. He, um, he evidently had some business savvy, made some money, kind of kicked around, lived a few years, kind of uh, happy-go-lucky, and didn't go broke in the process. I'm not sure what was up with that. But um, he, was, he was doing okay, traveling around. The day came when um, the Great Northern Flyer was to make its maiden run. The Great Northern Flyer was the first northern transcontinental railroad. It went from Seattle to New York or something like that. Buffalo, maybe. I forget exactly where. Um, And um, so John Tyndall decides he had nothing better to do. He's going to catch catch the train. Um, so he's riding on this train and a bunch of, uh, you know, half dozen, six, eight guys, um, young single guys ended up in the smoking car, I think it was, something like that, on the train, sitting around chewing the fat, so to speak, and they covered this topic and that topic and some other topic, and eventually they got around to religion. Well, this was John Tyndall's. This was this was his 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 yeah, this was his arena. Okay, he hated religion, and so he ripped into it. And he was pretty skillful at what he was doing. And um, he pretty well had things going his way in short order. He says, and so after picking up here, after about half an hour or so, a tall, stately gentleman with a very pleasant countenance came in and took a seat almost directly in front of me. And listened attentively to my arguments. After a little while, he asked me a question, which seemed at once to open the whole controversy anew. It took some time for me to get what I supposed to be an intelligent and logical answer to this question. When I finished, he asked me another, quietly and unobtrusively. His second question staggered me. I had hard work to handle it, but I did my best. After about ten minutes' reasoning, He asked a third question, which so completely upset my arguments that I was speechless. I verily felt dumbstruck. My mind failed me, and I was not able even to utter a word. After a few moments, the gentleman arose and passed quietly out, and one by one the others followed until I found myself alone, humiliated, defeated. The more I thought it over, the more humiliated I became until anger and grim determination to find this man took hold of me. As I tried to think of just what he had asked me, I was unable to recall exactly the questions. That train did not stop within an hour or more, being a through train, making very few stops. And I hunted the train through and through, making inquiries of those who were in the smoking room, watching every door, leaving no corner unsearched, but the man could not be found. The train was running at least 45 or 50 miles an hour. The man did not get off. Who he was, where he came from, what became of him is a mystery. But I believe him to have been a messenger from God to me and no ordinary being. From that experience, I passed into a state of agnosticism. And I would never again say there is no God. But I did not know that there was a God. (laughs) He's hard not to crack. (laughs) Okay, so he gives up on the atheism thing, and he says, okay, well, uh, we just won't talk so certainly about things. I'll just, at this point, I'll say, I don't have a clue what's going on. Instead of saying, I know there is no God. Okay, well, Tyndall was, 
he was a sharp guy. He must have been a pretty sharp guy. And he, he uh, during the next several, you know, this next period of his life, he's described in various ways. He was said to be a newspaper man at one point. And I don't know if that means a publisher or a reporter or, I don't know, maybe he sold them on the street corner. I don't know, but somehow he was a newspaper man, okay. He, he raised thoroughbred horses uh, out in California someplace. He had a, a ranch where he raised thoroughbred horses. Uh, he was a law student, at least at one point. I don't know if he ever took the bar exam, but he was a law student. But none of that was important enough, evidently, to uh, tie the guy down when news came in that gold had been found down by the Mexican border. <laughs> and so he dumped all that, and he went out to the desert to go prospecting, um, along with a couple of other guys. And they said, well, well, let's go out here and let's look around. We'll spend the night at the home of a very strange individual. His name was Daddy Bell. He was probably 65 years old. He lived out in the deserty mountain area someplace by himself. And his companions told him, he said, uh, Daddy Bell is the nicest guy you're ever going to meet, but he's weird. Uh, he won't want you smoking in his house. And he won't serve you any real good food because he doesn't ever eat meat. And he's got this weird thing with this whole Friday night sundown business that we don't quite understand. Okay, so they went out and they found Daddy Bell at his house and they spent some time with him, a fair amount of time evidently. And Tyndall quickly figured out that this guy was religious. And so he says, I did everything I could to be obnoxious. <laughs> he smoked in the house. <laughs> he says, hey, where's the meat? I want some steak. <laughs> he was just, it was just a, a, a very rude house guest. And he did it intentionally because he wanted to see if the guy remained calm. He was just flat out testing him. He did that for several days, he says. And then finally he says, okay, I've been testing you. So now I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you. He says, are, are you a Christian? I said, well, he says, he says, why do you do these things? He says, because I, that's why I read in the Bible. So, so you're a Christian then? Yes. You believe the Bible? Yes. Tell me, he says, my little brother died. Where is he? Right back to the thing that had thrown him off the track in the first place. Well, that was a, that was a, that was a slam dunk. <laughs> Daddy Bell happened to be straight on the state of the dead, and he tells him all about it. And it's like, really? That actually sort of makes sense. If you believe the rest of the Bible, that would make sense, actually. It makes a lot more sense than having him up there. You know? So then he asked uh, he, his other question, you know, standard questions, classic atheistic stuff, you know, how can a God of love allow bad things to happen? And so Daddy Bell explained the great controversy. <laughs> and, you know, once you, have, once you have that context of there being a battle going on behind the scenes, it all makes a lot more sense. And Tyndall was impressed. He says, well, that actually sort of makes sense, if you believe the rest of this stuff. Yeah. Well, what's this thing with the Saturday business? So why do you do that? He says, because I believe my Bible. Well, where does it say that? So Daddy Bell gives him a... Another Bible study. He stayed there for a couple of weeks, evidently, at least. At some point, Tyndall um, 
managed to... Oh, one of the other things he... This is great. you love this. Daddy Bell is like 65 years old, right? And these guys would go out on these prospecting, prospecting trips, whatever. Um, uh, it's hot, you know, down there in the desert, even though they were up in the mountains someplace. I don't know exactly where, but anyhow. And it was... There were no trails. It was just rugged terrain. And the amazing thing was that Daddy Bell was always at the front of the pack saying, you guys coming? <laughs> he was in good shape. Okay. And that kind of blew them away because it's like, how could he possibly have any strength when he doesn't eat meat? And he says, uh, where'd the cow get the strength? You know? <laughs> you know, you guys are doing this all secondhand. You know, it's like, don't blame me, man. Come on. <laughs> so, so that, you know, that impressed Tyndall too. Um, Tyndall, on one of these trips, he, he banged up a leg somehow or the other, and so he was, he was laid up for a while. And um, at some point, um, uh, Daddy Bell uh, gave him a, a desire of ages to read. And he started reading this. And he says, you know, this is not a normal book. Where did you get this? <laughs> what is up with this book? And so Daddy Bell explains the whole concept of the spirit of prophecy. Now, we are way too shy of the spirit of prophecy. Let me just tell you a real quick story I heard last night. Do you know Remnant Publications? You've heard of them? They're the guys who published my book. Dwight Hall is the president, or no, actually it's the CEO, I guess. I've known him since like 87 or something like that. Dwight's a good guy. They just printed a, a, a conflict set. That really fancy one, if you've been by their booth, the really nice kind of gift box, you know, fancy one. Okay. It's not going to be for everybody. It's kind of like a presentation special gift box, beautiful thing. Normally sell for about 200 bucks. They'll sell it for about 100 bucks. Okay. They had that printed by the company that does all the big printing for all these non-Adventist televangelists. Okay. Um, Austin and, and uh, who's this? Joyce Meyer. You know, she prints a ton of stuff. Uh, they do the printing for all these guys because they're geared that way. They, they have a design house here and they print in China. It's cheap. Uh, and so Dwight goes to these, with these guys with this, with this conflict set and he, they, they discuss what they want and he wants pull quotes. Do you know what a pull quote is? It's, it's the large... You know, where there's one little idea that's in large print on a page. It's kind of a highlight idea. Okay, that's a pull quote. And so Dwight says, I want pull quotes. Okay. And the, one of the two guys, I mean, the two top guys in this company, um, I forget the name of it. Go by the booth and ask him. Anyhow, uh, the two top guys, uh, one of them says, I'll, 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 I'll do the quotes for you. I'll, I'll, I'll do the pull quotes. And Dwight says, well, okay. Um, you know, this guy's a non-Adventist. I mean, you know, is he really going to pull the right stuff? You know, so Dwight says, oh, you, you, you go ahead and do that, and I'll check them over, and just, you know, kinda, if you don't mind, I'll just kind of check and make sure they're, they're going to fit my audience and everything. So this guy has to read the entire conflict set. <laughs> doing pull quotes. And Dwight says, you would not believe the stuff he was pulling. It was great. And when he gets all done... This guy's comment to Dwight, he says, 
Where did you get these books? He says, you Adventists have these books? You should be ashamed of yourselves. Why don't you tell us about these books? Well, we are way too gutless about the spirit prophets. So Daddy Bell takes an interesting approach to John Tyndall. And he knew that Tyndall had been an atheist. You know, the cool thing about atheists, and especially agnostics, atheists like to pretend they know what's going on. Agnostics are at least honest enough to, to admit that they're totally ignorant. Okay? Uh, you understand the difference between two words? Atheism, there is no God. Agnosticism means I don't know. Okay? <laughs> no knowledge. Okay? Um, atheists and agnostics, one of the great things about them is that they don't know nothing for sure. Now, the atheists still pretend, I, I, I understand physics. Oh, happy for you. you know? <laughs> but they don't know anything about life for sure. And so Daddy Bell plays off of that, and he says, he, he takes him to the Bible, and he shows the role of prophecy down through the, the biblical history. He says, human beings aren't smart enough to know what's going on. The only way we know what's going on is when God tells us what's going on. It's what prophets are for. It's what prophets have always done. We still got a prophet today. She wrote that book. For an agnostic who's thrashed around in professional not knowingism, <laughs> how cool could that be? You know, here's somebody that really knows. This is from God. And the guy says, This is great. And my leg's better. I got to go. <laughs> and so he heads back to whatever passes for civilization in California. And he, he, he goes and he finds an Adventist. And he says, you're an Adventist. Yeah. He says, this book is from you guys. Yeah. He says, I, I, I got to join your church. Okay. He says, I, I, I probably ought to be a minister. What do I do to be a minister? Well, you... Probably ought to go to Union College in Nebraska and take theology. Okay, okay, yeah, well, where's the train? You know, I'm going to go be a minister. But before he went to Union, somewhere, somehow, somebody said something about this medical missionary training program that was just opening in the fall of 1908 at a little town called Loma Linda. You know, people love what, the tool that converts them. And the guy had been converted by a medical missionary out in the desert. Duh! Obviously, this is like the coolest thing in the world. Sign me up. So he goes to, to Loma Linda in the fall of 08, signs up for the two-year course that they had at that point, and he's graduating in the spring of 1910. Exactly when Ellen White comes down to R.S. Owen and John Allen Burden and says, gentlemen, Gospel, medical, missionary, company, evangelism. Make it happen. So they look around, and the obvious choice was John Tyndall. Okay? And um, so they, uh, they approached him and said, um, will you take this on? And he prayed about it for a while. And um, finally he said yes. Okay, so if I get up to my place here, and I'm just working through my book is actually what I'm doing. Uh, when the respons responsibility to see this approach carried out was laid on the shoulders of the administration of CME, 
They look for a point man. And John Tyndall, the bottom of that paragraph there, San Bernardino or bust, if you can find where I'm at on the page, with the task of incorporating the health message into an evangelistic outreach, hard enough, Tyndall was told to do this in the nearby town of San Bernardino, even harder. San Bernardino had already been evangelized, except for the fact that they hadn't responded. (laughs) It was kind of a burnt-over district already. San Bernardino had already heard of Loma Linda, and they hadn't responded very much, okay? So, um, skip down a little bit here. Uh, No, I didn't skip down. I skipped up. Okay. Um, He goes down there. And uh, to everyone's surprise, the health approach appealed to the members of a high society ladies club and they used their influence to gain free coverage of the meetings in the local newspaper. Okay. Now, another two bits worth of commentary for whatever it's worth to you. Seek influence and live like you deserve it. Act like you deserve it. Look like you deserve it. You know? If you want respect and influence, cultivate a little personal dignity. How you act, how you dress, what you do. Look like the kind of guy that people will respect and and trust. And then they will respect and trust you. It's an amazing thing. Okay? So... Cultivate it. There's, Ellen White talks many times, or several times at least, uh, about you know, look for individuals who know how to reach the, 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 uh, the well-to-do, the upper society, the, the movers and the shakers. They're the ones that have the influence amongst their peers, the worldlings, you know, right? You've got to be able to reach them. Tyndall had that. I mean, he'd been this, you know, he'd, he'd been a businessman. He'd been a law student. He, he, he maneuvered well in upper society. And so there's this meeting going on next door to where they'd pitched their tent in San Bernardino, the high society ladies club, and he goes over and introduces himself. Hello. So happy to see you, ladies. It's nice to see a, 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 a quality collection of, uh, of the women of San Bernardino. I'm so happy that you're here. You know, whatever, I don't know how he, what he said precisely. They came over, they listened to the health talk, and said, this is good. This is good. One of them was married to the guy, that, uh, to the editor of the newspaper, and all of a sudden, Tyndall's got full-page po- coverage in the local newspaper. This is what influence does. It's a good thing. Okay? Well, uh, one regular attendee was convinced and seemed ready to commit, but just never would. Direct inquiry found the problem. The man couldn't stop smoking. With a weak heart, he feared he'd die in the process. So what did Tyndall do? He said, I've got a nurse. My nurse is going to come live at your house while you quit smoking. We know how to handle these things. We understand hydrotherapy. We understand this whole process. You're not going to die. And if you have any heart problems, you've got a nurse right there. Medical missionary work. So they send the nurse over. The guy quits smoking. He gets baptized. And he's a great witness to all his friends. And he had a bunch because he was an influential guy. Okay? So uh, just, just some illustrations of how this all works. In the end of this one little series, there were 16 baptisms. One of which was 
Tyndall's, till this time, hesitant wife. Okay? You know, it's always a little bit dicey when you're married and one spouse goes off and does something diametrically weird compared to what he or she had been before, you know? Okay, so, okay, let's be a little patient with Mrs. Tyndall, right? 16 baptisms in San Bernardino. This was, this was pretty exciting. Loma Linda was like, wow, something's working here. This is cool, okay? The conference took note, and they said, Brother Tyndall, we think you have a gift for evangelism. We'd like you to uh, do this all again on a bigger stage. Would you come to Los Angeles? Well, that's pretty heady stuff for a freshman evangelist. You know, I mean, come on. All of a sudden, he's asked to, you know, have a campaign in, like, I don't know, whatever the 10th biggest city in the country or whatever it is, everything, okay. But there was a catch to it. The conference said, you know, we are convinced that you, you have a, a gift of evangelism, so we want you to focus on that. The health thing, that's nice, but we want to do serious evangelism in Los Angeles. John Tyndall said, thanks, but no thanks. I've got my calling. Gospel, medical, missionary, company, evangelism. And he took a call to Indiana instead. Now, we've got the figures here. If I can find them quickly. Oh, there's some, some great stories here, though. This is in Indiana. Um, I believe it was. Eventually, even the editor, excuse me, the smaller print there, even the editor of the local newspaper came to one of the health talks and was so impressed with the work that he offered to gain, open his paper to the campaign. Uh, C.E. Garnsey, a nurse and a medical evangelist, wrote some health articles for the papers, and Elder Tyndall was requested to write some columns concerning religion. So he wrote on our Adventist doctrines. About 10 to 12 miles away, there was a church of God that didn't have a resident pastor. They took these articles of Elder Tyndall appearing in the paper and read them for their Sunday services. They didn't realize what they were getting into, and eventually half of that church accepted the truth and the Sabbath and were baptized. <laughs> oh, bummer. <laughs> Maybe we should preview these sermons before we read them next time. Um, so, <laughs> um, so Tyndall's team down here at the bottom, Tyndall's team continued to move about the country holding campaigns, usually about six months long. Okay? This was not a bam, you know, fly by night, come in, come out type of thing. This was, a, this was a coordinated medical missionary program. And um, I don't really put it in the book here, but just recently, just two months ago, less than two months ago, I got hold of a document where Tyndall outlines the whole plan for while, you know, the, what do you do the first two weeks? What do you do the second two weeks? What do you do? You know, we start, the, we start the health program here. We start this class here. We start this class here. If you get them into a, ba- a, a Bible study by this time, go ahead. But otherwise, stall them off until you can get them into this point here. It's got the whole thing mapped out. It's really fascinating. It may not be the perfect solution, but it did work. And it may work still, relatively, today. But, you know, so they had teams or they had um, meetings in Indianapolis, Indiana, someplace in Virginia. I've never found out where in Virginia. Farmersburg, Terre Haute, I don't know how to pronounce that, and Indianapolis, Indiana, a second time. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Tulsa, Oklahoma City uh, in Oklahoma, and Dallas, Texas. Um, Now, what's interesting about this, see if I can... 
okay, is that Tyndall kept, uh, kept all the data on this, okay? Um, and uh, if I can find this. Hmm, I'm not finding it. I'll, I'll do it from memory here. The first five campaigns that he ran after he started with a medical evangelistic approach. Basically, what he was doing during those campaigns was using, uh, making a medical component a part of his presentations, okay? Have some separate medical meetings, health meetings, that, that kind of a thing. But it was all preaching, okay? Because he just had himself and an assistant and, and, and a nurse, and that's, that's what he had. In those first five meetings, there was an average... Um, I think I have the figure about right. Maybe it's not exact, but it's pretty close. Uh, I think there were 24 baptisms, average of 24 baptisms per series. Well, that's not too bad. I know of you know, a fair number of evangelists would probably be happy with 24 baptisms per series. Uh, you can argue that his series were longer, and so you, know, you should count on more baptisms because more time invested, perhaps. You could argue that if you wanted. But still, 24 baptisms per series was not, was not too bad. But after five series, I think he was in Indiana, and it's not really clear from the account that I have of this, but I think he was in Indiana at the time. He went to the conference office and he said, Brethren, we have a problem. I'm not being true to the council. And he says, what? He says, I was commissioned to carry out gospel, medical, missionary, company evangelism. And the three of us, we're not a company. He says, I need, I need more people. And they effectively said, that's so nice, but we don't have a budget. And so he did something really interesting. He went out and he got volunteers. Eighteen volunteers. Six nurses, one singing evangelist, a bunch of unspecified people doing this, that, and the other thing. I don't know what all. made a total of 21 people, and they all lived somewhat communally off of three salaries and donations that they might receive on the side. And he said, he, he told them, he said, this will work. You watch. God has told us to do this. This will work. We're going to have a learning curve. I'm not sure what all we do with a company of workers, but you watch. This will work. And so they went into this next place, and they set up, they actually set up a hydrotherapy uh, treatment center. They had these nurses going out and kind of like the Christian help work, door to door, finding people that needed help of this, that, or the other thing. And they, they ran that aspect of things for a month or so before they started any meetings at all. And they started with the, with the health meetings. They did twice as many health meetings as they did spiritual meetings, evangelistic, you know, quote-unquote doctrinal meetings, okay? We have, the, we have the records for the next six campaigns, Average, 126 baptisms per campaign. Something was working. Something was working pretty well, actually. Um, let's see. I wanted to catch... Oh, there it is. Okay, my figures were off. Let's get them right. 
When we crunch the numbers on Tindall's first five campaigns, we find an average of 36. I said 24, so I was off on that. My apologies. It's not bad, actually. 36 is pretty good. Uh, then you got the volunteers. Da 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 da. Uh, statistics are available for six campaigns. After the switch, the company model is an average of 121. Okay, so I was too low on one, too high on the other. My apologies. Um, that's what memory will do to you. 121 baptisms per series. Okay. Uh, I won't go through this, but here are, here's a, a quick overview of the approach that he took. And then I want you to see this here. In Oklahoma City... Even the local newspaper chimed in with a comparison of Tyndall's work and that of the far more famous evangelist Billy Sunday, who just happened to show up in town at the same time. In an article entitled, A New Evangelism, their comment was, Sunday got the crowds, but Tyndall got the converts. Okay. Anybody remember Billy Sunday? Okay, yeah, he was like a charismatic kind of preacher. If you ever see a picture of him, he's going to be... You know, it's just one of those guys. Yeah, ooh! <laughs> I think he was a professional baseball player before he became an evangelist, if I remember right. So, he's, you know, that was his little shtick, was, you know, <laughs> this big charismatic thingy. Whatever, okay. The Review and Herald of January 6, 1921, put at Oklahoma City, probably had the most successful single city effort ever held in the history of our work which resulted in the addition of about 200 members to the church. Of course, that was written before the Dallas, Texas campaign, which could hardly have been any less successful than something done in Oklahoma. I don't know, you know if you're not from either Oklahoma or Texas, you may not catch the, <laughs> the little rivalry thing there, but you know everything's always better in Texas, right? Um, truth be told, the Dallas program was a success. Okay. Um, and I'm not going to go through all that for right now. Okay. Well, here's what happened. After several years of this, um, long about 1923, there was a group of physicians who believed that you had to eat meat. And they took offense uh, of uh, Elder Tyndall and his preaching. And they got really all bent out of shape over it. And I understand they took out like full page ads and newspapers and things uh, attacking Elder Tyndall. And they did so on the basis of his lack of credentials. He said, this guy is not a doctor. He's a nothing, you know. And and so they had this big negative publicity campaign. Uh, Circumstances worked out in such a way that Tyndall thought, you know, maybe I'll I'll take a break and I'll I'll go get some education. He says, because diet was a big issue, and he says, I'll go, I'll go, you know, gain a little more uh, ammunition on this thing. So he went to Loma Linda. He went back to Loma Linda in 1923, and he uh, he signed up for a a course in dietetics. Okay. Um, At the same time, interestingly enough, there was a 17-year-old kid who was trying to get into Loma Linda. Eh, 17 is a little young to go to college. And they weren't going to let him in, but he was really trying pretty hard to get in. And then they found out that he had no academic record to stand on because he didn't have any report cards because he had been homeschooled before they'd invented the term homeschool. (laughs) But somebody somehow pulled some strings or whatever, and the kid managed to get in and sign up for the two-year 
medical missionary course. It's a good thing he did, because that was the last year it was offered. He wouldn't have got it the next year. So Elder Tyndall, substantially older, and it's been a while since he's been in school, and you know he finds himself in the middle of a chemistry class, and he wasn't—he was—he was kind of struggling with this chemistry stuff a little bit for his dietetics courses, you know. But his lab partner was the 17-year-old kid, and so um, the kid was pretty sharp, and helped him out with the chemistry class, and that was—that was good. They became good friends, and they developed a, a real high degree of respect and trust, one with another, a young man with a older, more experienced guy. Well, they both graduated in 1925, Tyndall with his dietetics program, and I don't think he got a formal degree as such, but he you know, completed up in, in 1925, and, and the, the young kid finished up with his medical missionary program. He was all of 19 years old now and didn't get a job. Nobody was hiring medical missionaries per se as such, and so um, he... Um, he took up some printing. He was printing evangelistic handbills on a little hand press. Two years went by. 1927, Tyndall's out in California, and the president of the conference comes to him and says, John, what you're doing, nobody else is doing. We've got to teach people how to do what you do. Well, you can do that, he says. We need a school. We need a field school. The field school of evangelism. He says, we're going to start it here in Sacramento. No, San Francisco. We're going to start a field school in San Francisco. I'm going to have you run it. He says, this is important, John. This is really important. I don't have a lot of money to throw at this. I've got one good salary. You pick who you want. Get the best man. We'll get him here. And John Tyndall says, you know, I know who I want. This is a 19-year-old kid down by Loma Linda down there. He lived someplace nearby. And the conference president says, no, absolutely not. I want you to have, you know, don't give me this humility nonsense. Pick the best man. They argued about it for three weeks. Finally, the, uh, the president says, why do you want this kid? He's never, he's never had a job in his life. He has no experience. And Tyndall said, Exactly. He doesn't think he knows, what he, he knows what he's doing. All I have to do is train him. I don't have to untrain him. Besides that, he's a godly young man. He believes the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, and I, I respect him. So they hired him. And for the next 10 years, this young man worked with Elder Tyndall at the Field School of Evangelism. Sometimes I use a picture. I don't have the picture handy right now, so I won't bother. You might recognize the name. The young man was Wilmont... For Z, otherwise known as WD for Z. He worked with Tyndall for 10 years. Five years directly with him in his own company. The last five years, uh, Tyndall spun him off onto a company of his own. Okay. For Z worked uh, through uh, Salt Lake City uh, area, uh, out to Oklahoma, down south, in that, that direction of things. Um, these programs were successful. They were longer-term programs, more like six months. They were medical missionary programs, and they were, they were successful. But it was right in the heart of the Depression. And eventually, a whole variety of influences, one thing and another, it all died out. 
The funding was cut. And the field school ceased to exist. So Elder Frizee, a couple of years later, 1941, uh, teamed up with a physician who had some property. And he said, you know, if gospel medical missionary company evangelism is God's method to take the truth to the cities, there has to be a school someplace that's teaching it. And that was the, uh, that was the origin of Wildwood, Wildwood Institute. Now, I respect Wildwood, so take this with all due respect, for Z was not particularly successful at training gospel medical missionary evangelists. There's like a whole first generation of the folks that he worked with. They got a vision from him, and it wasn't a bad thing, but what the vision they caught was how to start institutions. And so that's where Eden Valley and Oak Haven and Castle Valley and I'm missing a few, but anyhow, uh, that's where they came from. And they're not bad things. I like them. But, you know, it's hard, and it has been hard for the last however many decades now, to really make gospel medical missionary evangelism work. Here's the good news. Times are changing. There's support for this now. From the highest levels of the church. The first, evangel- first gospel medical missionary evangelist that went out from Loma Linda, or excuse me, from uh, Wildwood, as far as I know, was a guy by the name of Mark Finley. That's his roots. That's his roots, yeah. Another guy who has a strong interest was the fellow that ran the Metropolitan Evangelism Project in New York City back in 1980, 81 type of thing. His name is Ted Wilson. And if you've been listening to either of those guys for the last couple of years, they're calling for, and they may not be using the same terms that I use, they've got different names, uh, comprehensive urban evangelism, I think is what Elder Wilson terms it. But that's, that's what we're talking about. It's the same thing, just a new, new, new title on the, on the historic same thing. Okay? This is a great time to get into gospel, medical, missionary, company, evangelism. Okay? We don't have the nuts and bolts put together. We don't have the kinks worked out. Nobody's done a really, really good job. Probably Tyndall's was the, as good a job as has ever been done. There's much to learn, but if you want to get in, I'm talking to the younger people here, folks, right now. If you want to get in the ground level of what has the potential of being the next big thing, and with any luck at all, and I know some people don't like the word luck, so, you know, by God's grace, not only the next big thing, the last big thing, <laughs> you know, let's do something that counts. Okay? Um, my time is up, and so I should probably quit. But um, if you haven't yet, <laughs> if you haven't yet, go by the Weimar booth and give them your email address and get a book, uh, because uh, you know, even more stories are in there, and I think you, you might enjoy them. Uh, I see a hand. A question? So, do you have any practical, um, any practical thoughts until you did a share of city evangelism? Right. Um, after studying this model, do you have any thoughts going forward for those who may envision something like it? 
It is a good question. Number one, it's founded on sacrifice because sacrifice is what buys you influence. So, you know, actually, in the, in the program that we ran in Wichita, um, the one thing that I caught flack from more than anything else was my call for volunteer workers. Ellen White calls for volunteer workers. Actually, every example that I've been able to find, starting with Tyndall and Frizee and a guy by the name of Scoggins, who was trained by Tyndall, and uh, Mark Finley's program, and then later on, uh, Brad Thorpe, uh, up in British Columbia. Any British Columbians here? Okay, the Radiant Living Seminars, the original one back in the 19s, late 70s, early 80s, okay. Um, every one of those programs, when you do the math on it, they came out to either five, six, or seven volunteers per paid employee. Okay. It's, it's going to require sacrifice, and, and that's okay. Because God says he'll cover the slack, you know. God will provide for those who work for him, okay, if they're wholehearted and, you know, not, yes, there's, there's presumption that can be a close, close walk down the line, okay. Here's the thing, though. I, I, did kit, I did catch flack from people who were uh, offended when I said I, I only have volunteer positions. Probably the, the best example of that was I got this email from a lady, and I don't remember her name, don't remember where she was from, she says, I've read, I've, I listened to your sermon on Audioverse and I read the, the thing you had on your website. It's exactly what my husband and I have been studying for the last year. Uh, God's calling us to come work with you. And I says, great. Um, I'm happy. That's, that's good. I, I don't have any housing to offer and I don't have any paid positions, so that may be a barrier. But if you're able to come and volunteer, we'd be happy to try and find a way to work. I got an email back. You know, this, you know these little emoticons, you know, the smiles and things? Okay. That's because you really can't hear the tone of voice on an email. And so I, she didn't use any emoticons, and I'm not really sure what they would have been if she had, but <laughs> it sounded to me like a bit of a scorcher because it went something along the lines of, volunteer? I can't volunteer. I've got bills to pay. I don't know anybody that could volunteer. That's stupid. Besides, the Bible says the worker is worthy of his wages. Thank you. So, <laughs> you know, well, she's right. That's scripture. So I thought I really ought to check that out. So I looked up the verses, and I don't remember where they are. Obviously, they're in the Gospels. Jesus was sending out the 70. The guys we talked about when they came back, you know, okay? He's sending out the 70. And he said, when you go to a town... Find a house and say, peace be unto you. And if they're worthy, the peace will rest on them. Stay in their house. Eat what they give you. And sleep there. And then move on. That's room and board. <laughs> That's room and board. That's the wages. What did you think you were worth? <laughs> it's, like, you know, it's like the work is going to be sacrificial. God will provide what is necessary. I'm convinced of it, you know? I know a lot of people, oh, you get what you pay for. Well, there's truth in that, okay? And, and anybody that's trying to run a program that accepts volunteers is going to get, I'll just be honest, you're going to get some people that, that, that aren't worth what you're paying in their granola, you know? They're just, you know, sorry, you're not worth having here. You really need to move along, and we will pray for you, you know? But, 
But seriously, the work will go forward with sacrifice. We're told that the work, will, you know, the work was founded in sacrifice and it will call for more sacrifice when it's done. And a lot of that's going to be volunteerism. That's, it's, as I read it, Ellen White says, call for volunteers. Um, good advice, A, get out of debt. Actually, that's B. A, don't go into debt. Okay? <laughs> uh, you know, it's really, really hard to volunteer when you're in debt. You can't. Okay? So don't go into debt. Get out of debt. Keep your options open. Wait for the Lord's leading. Look, start your own program. You know, start Christian help work. Somebody, somebody, was, somebody was just telling me that they, where, where was I? Yeah, well, you, yeah, you and your husband was, is one example. But there was somebody else I was just talking to. I don't know if it was here or maybe up in, you know. He's starting his own little, own little youth outreach program. Amen! You know, you don't have to wait till you know, the general conference comes along and says, we're drafting you. You know, yeah, no, 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 start your own, you know. Um, little things. Do something. Just get started. God will open the next door, okay? Um, I can't guarantee how Lord will work with anybody else. I'll tell you what happened in my case. In a weird story, weird turn of events, you know, in, in 40 seconds, I had my little epiphany and, and my plans were changed from going overseas to starting a program right there in Wichita. And, and I knew, I'd, the Lord has thrown all this stuff at me since I was 17 years old. And when I was 17, I moved into the home of a fellow who worked with J.H.N. Tyndall. Okay, and so I started hearing the stories back then. Um, and I knew company evangelism was cool. I, you, know, you mentioned Radiant Living, okay? Yeah, I was living up in Canada when Brad and, and, um, and uh, 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 the other guy, anyhow, uh, was running, Brad Thorpe was running the program up there and whatnot and all that. My, my wife's brother worked with Brad down there. So, you know, I knew this stuff. And all of a sudden, I just knew what we needed to do was start a little company of, of Bible workers. And so I just said, you know, if the Lord gives me a job that I can make some money, I can support four or five or six Bible workers. I'll give them pride room and board and, and gas money. Gas was $4 a gallon right then. That was kind of scary. But, uh, you know, I said, you know, I'll start a little company of Bible workers because this has to happen. And I remember thinking to myself, that's pathetic. <laughs> that's just it's so, so totally defective and deficient from what I know the whole plan should be. And you read about the San Francisco program, if you know about the Beehive program, Rico Hill and Jared Thurman, they're working off of that same kind of concept, if you're familiar with that. There's so many other things that were supposed to be there along with this little company of Bible workers, but it's all I could stretch my, my imagination to. But I remember saying to myself, you know, if it's a step in the right direction, it gives the Lord a target for him to shoot blessings at, okay? If you don't give him a spot to, to, to you know, bomb with blessings then, you know, the bombs probably stay in the airplane type of thing, okay? So I said, I'm going to put out a target. And then I talked to my wife. She's the practical one in the family. And she says, you do have a problem. I said, what's that? She says, you don't have bedrooms for four people, let alone six. Oh, yeah. Hadn't thought of that. <laughs> so, you're absolutely right. And I said, I need a bigger house. I need to find a house out in the country for cheap rent. That's impossible to find in the Wichita area. I said, I will ask my buddy, church member, the only guy I knew who had anything to do with real estate. I said, I'll ask him. Well, it took a little while to get together with him, but before I did, he got hold of me. 
He says, Dave, I have a question for you. I said, well, cool, I've got a question for you too. You go with your, your question first. So the two of us got together, we're standing off in the fellowship hall at church, takes a deep breath, and he just looks at me and he says, Dave, I've been an Adventist for seven years now. And the whole time I've been here at this church, they keep talking about moving out in the country and growing your own food and getting ready for the time of trouble and vegetarian restaurants and health food stores and work in the cities and all that stuff, but nobody's doing it, Dave. And he said, I don't really do well with stuff that's not getting done. He says, if we're going to talk about it, we ought to be doing it, but nobody's doing it. And I'm just really getting fed up with that. So I'm going to start a restaurant. I'm going to start a health food store. I'm going to start, I'm going to get something going. He said, Dave, he said, I don't have a clue how to do that. I don't know anything about this stuff. He says, but I've learned something in my construction business. If I need schedule 90 concrete, I don't have to know how to lay schedule 90 concrete. All I have to know is how to hire a guy who knows how to lay Schedule 90 concrete. So I've been praying for the last week. Who can I find that actually knows the council? I haven't even read the testimonies yet. Like as if most Adventists had. I haven't even read through the testimonies yet. You know? He says, who, who knows how to do this stuff? And he says, Dave, he says, the Lord just keeps bringing your name to mind. Now, I know you're going overseas, but are you going to be here for another week or a month or something? Can I hire you to get me started? Oh, and next week I'm closing on 164 acres, 60 miles out of town. That can be our health resort. And I'm standing here, and I'm thinking to myself after, you know, 20 years in administrative roles, I'm thinking, what has this poor guy ever done that he deserves the headaches he's going to get? <laughs> and, you know, but then I told him, I said, Larry, I said, I've got to tell you a story. I said, and I told him my little thing about my little Bible workers. I said, you know, if you take my little idea of the Bible workers and put it together with your health food store restaurant, and a little sanitary idea out there. It says, you know, we may or may not ever pull it off, but it's pretty close to what really needs to happen. And so I can't promise what the Lord's going to do for you. I really can't. You know, people say, how do you get started? Well, decide to do it and wait for a miracle is the way I did it. I, mean, <laughs> I didn't even have to wait, though, you know. God is more anxious to make this stuff happen than we are. That's, that's my conclusion from that, okay. Now, it helps, you know, it, it helps to know what you're doing before you expect the Lord to throw out a bunch, and, and the Lord had, had blessed me over the years with a lot of information that, unfortunately, most people don't have. Uh, incidentally, I'll put in a plug for my website, adventistcitymissions.org. Go to the documents page and download everything and memorize it, okay? <laughs> adventistcitymissions.org, okay? Um, the time is ripe. That's, that's my message for you, okay? The time is ripe. Um, look for other people who are interested. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you if, you, if you got the book and you gave Don your email address, he's keeping all those, okay? And we want to be able to, you know, get some information from people and, and you know, so that we know. I mean, this guy's a doctor. He's, he's you know, I was just talking to a guy. He's down in Texas, down by Houston. He's, he's, he's starting some things down there. He's going to need people, you know? He doesn't know what he needs just yet, but he's going to be needing people, you know? Either that or he's going to give up on Houston and say, I'm free to go wherever. I don't know which way it's going to go with him, okay? Um, but look for people that you can work with. If you happen to be a, a medical type, if you're a doctor or a dentist, join Amen immediately, <laughs> okay? The Adventist Medical Evangelistic Network. Get involved with them. If you're not a doctor or a dentist, you can still attend their conferences, and they're well worth, worth going to, okay? Um, look to see what's happening because it's going to happen. Ellen White said so. She says, it will happen. Because that's how the demonstration is made of two things. That God's people trust him when they don't have any food 
They don't have any water, you know. I mean, you know, bread and water is supposed to be sure. But, you know, when, 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 when they don't have what they would like to have, they trust him enough to still be serving others. That's an important demonstration. That's, you know, go back to, you know, lesson one on the great controversy. Without that demonstration, we aren't fit for heaven. And lesson two, or, or demonstration two, is the character of Christ can only be properly represented by doing the work as he did it. We are, we are entrusted, Ellen White says, with a, with a ministry identical to that of Christ. And his myth, methods alone will bring true success. Okay? So that has to be done. Now, one last little quick thing. Remember, day before yesterday, we were talking about every time Jesus was defending his messiahship, he pointed to his works. Okay? And his works were the compassionate works. Okay? There's another interesting passage. He says, if I had not come, actually it's in John 14, and he starts off by laying out parallels. You know, if the world hates me, they'll hate you. Uh, and I forget what the others are, but he says, this is the way it was with me, and that's the way it's going to be with you. This is the way it was with me, this is the way it's going to be with you. This is the way it was with me, this is the way it's going to be with you. Okay, I forget what they all are, but he goes through those things. And then he says two last things, and I'm only remembering one of them right now, but he says, he says two, two more things about himself, and he draws no parallel. So you're on your own to draw the parallel. But this is what he said. Talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, he said, he said they, would be, they would have no sin if I had not come and done the works before them. If they hadn't seen my works, they would have no sin. But they have seen my works, and now their sin remains. And I submit that it's that demonstration that closes probation. Mercy. That's exactly right. And um, then in Christ, I mean, uh, all for some ministry, it says that every time you present that evidence, souls make a decision. Savor of life unto life or death unto death. Yeah, yeah. And the last great test, the, the great final test, must come to the churches in connection with true medical missionary work. It's all there, folks. It really is. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, again, we thank you for what? How many years of patience? We pray that you will be with us and with your people as a whole, not, not just ourselves as individuals. Lord, we, yes, we all want to be your servants. We all want to be saved. We all want to end up in heaven. But, Father, we want to see this thing go. And we pray that you would give us the wisdom, the humility, the skills, whatever else it may take, that we can make known to the principalities and powers the manifold wisdom of God. In Jesus' name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.